Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. When the agonies of Christ came to their conclusion and he gasped out a final raspy breath, he cried on the cross, it is finished. We might have expected at that moment to hear, it's partway done. Because of course history wasn't finished. History would go on. We now live 2,000 years after the fact and God continues to work in the world. The consummation, the end of all things is not here yet. So why say it is finished? Why not? We're almost there. We're halfway there. But no, it is finished. The it is not history. We might even have expected Jesus to say from the cross, it's begun. Because only so many weeks later at Pentecost, the Spirit of God would come upon the church. Jesus, by His blood, as He had said at the Last Supper, was inaugurating a new covenant. He was starting a new age. He was doing something new. And the church began after His death and resurrection. So we could expect Him to say, it's begun. But it is not the church or the church age. It is finished. What's finished? Redemption. The whole of redemption was finished there as Christ died. It would be confirmed in the resurrection, so that was necessary, but it is finished. This means that when it comes to redemption, when it comes to the salvation of the human soul from wrath into righteousness, into life, eternal life, Everything necessary for that to happen is done. This is why at Faith Bible Church, we believe the soulless. We believe that salvation is not as a consequence of you going and doing something, some great labor, some system of works. It is rather grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it, because it was Christ alone who accomplished redemption. You contribute nothing to redemption, nothing whatsoever. If you did, it wouldn't be finished, you understand? But it is finished, it's done. The work of redemption is completely done. You cannot acquit yourself of one small drop of the guilt upon your record. You can't. There is often the opinion that if you should just turn your life around or do more good than bad on the great cosmic scales of God's justice, you'll somehow turn them to your innocence. But that's ridiculous. It's very natural to think that. It's very false to think that. It is finished already. You cannot contribute to that work that's finished. It's done. We are saying nothing more than what it took Jonah, a trip in the belly of a fish, to learn. And that is, salvation belongs to the Lord. It does not belong to you. You may benefit from it. You don't do it. You don't accomplish it. This is something the Lord does. But of course, you know that naturally we are like children who go to the Louvre Museum with our box of crayons 
And we asked that we might come and put some finishing touches on the Mona Lisa. And rightly so, the security is not going to let you do that. Because the Mona Lisa's done, and there's nothing with your box of crayons that you could contribute in the slightest. And similarly, there is nothing in the work of redemption that you can contribute at all. The great master, God himself through the Christ, has done all the work is done. It's this statement, it is finished, really, that makes the good news, which is what gospel means, good. If, rather, the work was not finished, and you had to work alongside or instead of God to earn some sort of redemption or salvation, well, that's just news. Or worse, that's bad news. You're not going to do it. The news is good because it's done already. Just as Hebrews says, Christ has become the source of eternal salvation. He did, not us. So you don't have to think about saving yourself, adding to the work that Christ has done, trying to fill up a cup that's already full to the brim. It's completely finished. The only thing that you have to think of in this life, this is it, this is the key essential thing, is the work that Christ has done applied to your account. Have you received it? Not done it. Have you received the benefits of what Christ has already accomplished? That's it. In the end, that is the question. Other questions of finance and future, spouse, life, these questions, they're not the question. The question is, what Christ has accomplished, does it apply to you? And the answer for some here is yes, and the answer for some right now is no. Is it applied to your soul? Like Mike had said, I don't know what thoughts you bring with you this morning. We all bring them. Burdens or anxieties that you feel, preoccupations that you have, family conflict, things at work, things at home. But for a moment, we put those all aside because these mean nothing before the great question that looms, which is the finished work of Christ. Is it yours? In the sight of God, is it applied to you? Is it the blood over your doorpost or not? If you are not certain what the answer to that question is, then God has, in His grace, given you the text that we have before us today. And almost nowhere in all of Scripture is all that is necessary to receive what Christ has accomplished shown than in this text exclusively in the Gospel of Luke. Here is a man who receives the benefits of what Christ has accomplished. He certainly doesn't contribute. He's actually pinned to a cross, but he receives the benefits of that. And then here is also, by way of negative example, a man who loses it, doesn't receive it, I should say, refuses it. So let's see these two men in our text, the example of how we receive what Christ has done, but beginning with the example of how we reject it. Luke 23, starting in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged, is on a cross, railed at Jesus saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That final line shows that this second thief received the complete benefit of what Christ was accomplishing that moment upon the cross. He received what you and I were put upon this earth to seek and to grope after and to find that we might hear those same words. You will be with me in paradise. That is the climax. That is the purpose. That is the end of human life. That's what it's about. It's right there. To hear the promise of God, you will be with me in paradise. This life is some brief snippet of a collection of experiences and then paradise forever, eternity. That's the main event. We're just in the waiting room. This is the prelude. This is the preface. And the purpose of this brief preface is to point us to paradise. And so to hear those words from the one who cannot lie, you will be with me in paradise. That's the summary of human life. That is the goal of everything, more than anything else that concerns us today. And therefore, since that promise was made verbally by Jesus in the days of his flesh to an individual, we can look at this text and see what was necessary, what was there in this thief that received that promise. He didn't do anything. Jesus was doing everything that moment. He did nothing but by his attitude. He received the benefits of what Christ accomplished. Now, of course, in this text, we don't begin on a positive note. We get there, but we actually begin in the very opposite direction with the first thief. And it is no accident that he is placed first by God because he demonstrates for us that while there is a great promise ahead of us, we'll see it, there's also an immense danger. And it is that you could be hung within three, four feet of Jesus Christ himself, the very portal into paradise, and yet not receive a single benefit of all he has accomplished. So we're going to look at the text under those two headings then, because that's how Luke does. We'll begin with the first thief, and we're seeing what is the warning? What is the negative example of this is how not to receive the benefits of the finished work of Christ? Don't be the first thief. You don't have to. Don't do that. And then we will turn, secondly, to the second thief and see what is it he does, what is it he is, what is it he thinks and says that results in him receiving the full benefits, eternal life, of what Christ has accomplished. So let's begin with the negative in the first thief and we'll move on then to the second. First then, let's start where Luke starts, this first unrepentant thief who hangs on one side of Jesus upon the cross. Luke had introduced these thieves earlier, so we mentioned them, but he delayed talking about them until now. So here we are, perhaps these companions of Barabbas, the rebel against Rome who committed murder. They too may have committed murder, we don't know. But now we see in verse 39, 
one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So we begin with the tragedy of our text. He's described, this first thief, as one who was, of the criminals, who was hanged, meaning hung upon a tree or upon a cross. He's crucified, and he's hanging there next to Jesus. He has touched the earth with his skin for the final time in his waking life. He knows that he's not coming down again until he is a corpse. This is it. And he's suspended into the air. Now the common destiny of all mankind looms before him. Death is the next step of his life. That's all he has ahead of him. And the amazing thing is that in the kindness of God, this man who could have been crucified on any hill in any city in the Roman Empire at any time is crucified on this hill, Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, on this day, within feet of the very door to paradise. It's Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. There's no other co-criminal, co-crucified individual who could offer to this man any sort of salvation, any sort of hope after death, except this one man. And here he is at the climax of salvation history, literally accomplishing what's necessary to pry open the pearly gates of heaven, and he's crucified next to him. That's a privilege. That's remarkable. And there he is with an earshot, able to speak to the very entrance into eternity. Paradise is that close to him, almost within arm's reach. You cannot come closer to the kingdom in a spatial sense. And then he fails to enter. And that is why he's a warning to us. The question is, why does he fail to enter? It's so close. It has nothing to do with space or location or timing or anything like that. It has nothing, in fact, to do with his sinfulness because the other thief, we'll see in a second, is just as sinful as he is. They're both criminals. They're both being crucified, some kind of cruel execution. They both deserve it. They've both lived evil lives. And yet one can enter heaven and he doesn't. So that's not what distinguishes them. Sometimes we think... That it's your degree of sinfulness that determines at the end of the day whether you'll be in paradise or not. That's not true. These are two equally, as far as we know, sinful people. It's something else that causes him not to inherit eternal life. And it's really his attitude. Whatever word you want to use, it's what's happening deep within him, in his heart, in the deep, rich Hebrew conception of that word. His core person. It's what's going on in there. And you see that in our text because even before he says a word, it says he railed at him. The word is literally blasphemed, and we use that to refer to railing at God, but the Greeks could use it to refer to simply ridiculing God or people. And in this case, he is ridiculing, railing at this person being crucified next to him. He's been lifted up from the earth. You'd think he'd have a bit better of a vantage point of what's going on, but he doesn't. And he joins with the people down at the foot of the cross who have already been railing at Jesus. We saw this last week. You saw in verse 35, there are the rulers who scoffed. And then in verse 36, there are the soldiers who also mocked. 
And now the very thief upon the cross next to Jesus joins with their taunts. He has the same attitude. He has the same heart as they have. And we could summarize that attitude like this. Unbelief. That question, are you not the Christ? It's not a sincere question. It sort of suggests a positive answer there. You're the Christ, right? But it's sarcasm. It's not intended. He may have, if anything, just the slightest sliver of a hope for the sake, out of desperation, for the sake of his own survival, that maybe this man is some kind of a king. Maybe he is some kind of a prophet. Maybe he does have some kind of supernatural favor or power, but he blasphemed. He railed at him. Those words, are you not the Christ? They're not an honest question. They are part of his railing out of desperation. They're a part of ridiculing this man. Are you really the Christ? That's what the others had said too. Then save yourself and us. And here you find a pretty core problem. And it is really in his assumptions about what the Christ would be. Same as we saw in everyone else. That is, he assumes if you're the Christ, if you're a great king, then you are able to save yourself and us. And you're not doing that. We saw that last week. So even if he has just the slightest bit of hope, or I'm sorry, faith in this man, the slightest bit of belief that he is what the sign above him claims him to be, the king of the Jews, the object of what king means, that very object of his faith is wrong. He wants this. Get me off this cross, let me go home and live out the rest of my life. That's what he desires and nothing more. When he says, save yourself and us, he doesn't mean save my soul. He doesn't mean deliver me from the wrath to come. He doesn't mean spare me because I've sinned against God. Those are things that require faith. You don't see God. You don't see the wrath of God. It's in the future. It's yet to come. Those would be indicators of faith. But what does he want? Only what he can see. Get me off this cross. I see this cross. I see the Romans. I see the soldiers. I see the sign. If you're the king, then fine, get me out of here. So I can go back to stealing or doing whatever I do. There's no faith. This is unbelief. It's a desperation, but it's unbelief. If by chance you happen to be something, then now... Save my earthly, visible, human life. It's the same thing that any unbeliever in the whole world would want. If you're on a cross, you want off of it. This is nothing remarkable in his desire. This is normal. It requires zero faith. It just requires you not to want to be on a cross. And he certainly has that. His focus is really what's personally convenient. There's no focus even upon Jesus necessarily, except insofar as he can do something that's convenient for him. Get me off of this cross. Now, I point out a few of these details because you know that this is the common attitude, especially in our country today. I'm not going to compare relative goodness of countries. Countries have problems, have sin. But this is the attitude you encounter in a very practical way every day if you are a believer and you are interacting with people who do not know Christ, or perhaps this is your own attitude, and it is generally a belief in 
details about Jesus. Yes, we do believe that he exists. Even a sort of positive feeling about him. We're not quick, typically as Americans, I guess it depends where in the country you are, but typically as Americans, we're not quick to discredit Jesus, usually. He's a good person. People tell very emotional stories of how he's impacted their life. We can tend to respect that. Think, okay, there may be something in that, possibly. And then we hear, if you go on TV and you find a televangelist, often what is it? Jesus can make you healthy. He can heal your sicknesses. He has great power. He can give you great wealth. He can prosper you in your work. If you'll follow these principles that he teaches, then you will be successful. Life will go well for you. And that increases sort of an admiration, at least for the person of Jesus at times. And this might really feel like faith. Because, of course, you're agreeing with details about Jesus, some true, some not. You're agreeing that he exists. You may agree he's the son of God. And you may think he's, he's God himself, one with God himself. You may believe the biblical data about who Jesus is. That really does look like faith. Just like what this thief says, even in his mocking, looks a bit like faith. But at the end of the day... It's a, merely a desire to use this man to get what I already want. And this is true of American Christianity as a general statement as well. And you can know that this is true because when things are going very well, it's easy to have this view of Jesus as, yes, he's giving me good things. I agree with him. I'll go with him. Maybe come to church. I'll honor him. I'll maybe tithe. But then what happens when pain strikes into your life? What happens when you're this thief and now you are lifted up from the earth to die? And the only thing ahead of you is agony. There is suffering. There is loss and pain. And in that moment, what becomes of your faith in Jesus? Because your faith was in an earthly, convenient sort of a king. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. I thought I signed up for something better than this. My life has become very difficult. I've lost a loved one. Someone is sick. I'm suffering. Get me out of this. If you're the Christ, the Jesus that I've been following, then get me out of this situation. And he doesn't. And now what happens? Either an abandoning, or just you stop thinking about it, or you rail. Or you rail and say, forget Jesus. Forget God. How could he be good and this be happening in my life? How could he be the Christ and we're still up here on the cross? This is what we call a nominal faith. It's my background. It's probably a background for many of you, and it may be where some of you are presently. And it is not that you don't agree with certain details or that you might have a sliver of faith like the thief upon the cross. You might be the Christ. Okay, well, prove it. Make my life better. But the problem is the focus is really upon you and what Jesus, as a sort of secondary issue, can do for you in your life now. That is not faith. That is actually unbelief. That is living by what you see, which is, by definition, the opposite of faith which is living by things which are not seen. Like the first thief, you may have an intellectual assent to Jesus and what he teaches, but what you do not have is a desperate trust in him. 
And we'll see this in a moment with the other thief, but that is the nature of faith. You may be like the person at the back of the classroom who sits back and nods his head as Jesus is discussed, but what you are not is the person who desperately dashes through the chairs to embrace the Savior's ankles in desperation. That's faith, not the person in the back. It's the person in the front. It is the sense of desperate trust, as we'll see in a second. But that is not the case with this thief upon the cross. Trial comes, he's maybe slightly open, but mostly he's mocking, he's rejecting because he does not believe. Now, if you think I'm being too hard on him, he is being crucified and that is excruciating. You can see the same thing said when the second thief begins to speak to him in the next verse, verse 40. He says, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? He's offering that as a question, but you and I know that's a statement. You, first thief, you do not fear God. Really what the second thief is saying is, I am shocked. Here we are in the same sentence of condemnation. Meaning, look, we're about to meet our creator. We're not going back to earth. We're dying, except to be buried. We are dying here. We are under the same sentence of condemnation. And yet now when you should be preparing yourself for that... Instead, you're railing at this innocent man. And beyond that same sentence of condemnation, we're guilty. You're guilty. Who are you to rail at him as if he's doing something wrong? You did wrong. That's why you're here. So it's a sense of shock. But the focus is on this first statement. Don't you fear God? How can you do that? You don't fear God. And it is more a statement. You do not fear God. We're on the cusp of eternity. How can you say these things? To say that he does not fear God, the fear of God, again, as the Hebrew rich conception in the scriptures, it's not just some slavish fear about God. It includes a concern about judgment for sure, but this fear of God is that old sense of walking with God, living before the face of God, a relationship with the living God. That's fear of God. If you want to say it in a different way, it's faith. Faith in God is fear of God. And so he basically tells the first thief, you don't have faith. This first thief does not believe that is not the attitude of his soul. And that is why he can die so close to the gates of paradise, but they will not open for him. Unless you humble yourself and become like a trusting child you will never see the kingdom and that is fulfilled in this first thief he does not believe not one ounce of the ocean of blessings that christ by his agonies is winning this moment in the text will fall upon his head by his unbelief he rejects it all that is in truth the only human tragedy and that is not to minimize the great tragedies you and I experience in this life. They are deep but in the end if you trust in Christ there is a paradise that will undo the tragedies you experience and more than make up for every last one of them. So the only true ultimate tragedy in the world is for a person no matter how nice their life here to ultimately reject Christ like the first thief because then there is no happy ending for that person. There is only a final and a complete loss. That is the warning of the text. And I tell you, 
That doesn't have to be you. There's no reason why you, within earshot of what I'm saying now, with your eyes upon the text of Scripture, seeing the promises of God, should in the end be in this place of this first thief. You do not have to die in unbelief. You do not have to die a nominal Christian without any of the benefits of Christ's saving work applied to your soul and enter into an eternity with zero safety net. That does not have to be you. That can be you and that does not have to be you. You say, what about the election of God? What do you know about the election of God? You know if he's elected you or not? Then take that out of the discussion. The promises of God come to you on this level of what you know and they say, if you will believe, you will have eternal life. The point of this text being in your Bible right now is, among other things, to tell you if you're in the place of the first thief, stop it. Why do that? There's no need. You can have eternal life. You can have paradise. And if you want to know how, well, then we turn to the second part of this message and this text, which is the second thief. So let's see in a positive way what is the attitude required to receive everything Christ has done? We've already begun to see the other thief speaking. Let's look at that again. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. We have spoken thus far of faith or belief. And that is the essential thing. But you may have know that biblically speaking, faith has two sides. Sort of like a coin. One side and the other. If you flip the coin of faith over, what you find is the word Repentance. Repentance is a part of faith, and it's what you are watching happen in the second thief upon the cross. I say that because both the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, in recounting this same event, say that at the beginning of the crucifixion, both the thieves railed at Jesus. Not one. Here's Mark. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Those. Not he those, which I take to mean both thieves next to Jesus on the cross, reviling him. They were both criminals, thieves, perhaps murderers. It's to be expected. They're reviling Christ along with everyone else. That's the beginning of the crucifixion. But now something has changed because we read things like we are suffering justly and we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, and this man is innocent. That looks like a different man from the one you found at the beginning of the crucifixion. What has happened? Do you know what has happened? Flip the coin. Repentance. Repentance is a biblical term that is, at essence, a turning. It is a change of the mind. Metanoia is the Greek, a changing of the mind. But it is really a mind in that heart sense, the deep inner person. It is a turning that takes place. Now what repentance is not is when you've had someone come to you who's deeply offended you and they say, sorry. That is not repentance. 
You know that. You feel that in that moment. They are not sorry. That is perhaps on their end a regret about consequences. A regret that you feel bad about what happened. That's not repentance. There's not a changing of the mind. The mind is exactly where it was and there's just a sorry with it. Many people treat repentance toward God like that. Oh, I'm so bad. Sorry, God. But without a turning of the mind, without a real turning from sin to Christ, not a deep and true repentance, which is part of faith. What does repentance really look like? How do you know that that's happened? It's right there in front of your eyes. Upon that cross next to Jesus, it's the man saying to his companion over there, we're suffering justly. You go into a prison, and no doubt there are some who are wrongly accused, but many are not, but most will say they are. You go into a prison, and everyone will declare his own righteousness and say, I'm not supposed to be here, I didn't really do it, and there are reasons to do that, so you try to get out. But here's a man being crucified, no excuse, no falsehood. He has, from the time at the beginning of the crucifixion to now, had time to think. It's a painful place to be. I'm sure the agony of the cross spurs on thought here. And at some point, God has worked in his heart in such a way that he has now changed how he thinks. There's no self-defense in this. There's nothing like in the first thief, almost an accusation turning to Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? There's none of that. It's instead me. I'm the problem. I'm suffering justly. I deserve to be here as does the other thief. We're receiving what our deeds deserve. Notice the things he does not say in this moment. He does not say, if, if my parents had only been there for me or raised me differently, then I wouldn't be the sinner that I am. Or if society wasn't set up the way it is, then I wouldn't be what I am today. Or if it wasn't for Rome and their oppression, they're the bad guys. They're the ones who came and took our homeland of Palestine. I'm not the problem. If I've done any wrong, it's because of them. That's the sorry approach. Excuses, self-defense, it's our natural state. And it is not repentance. Again, it might look a little bit like repentance. It is not repentance. What is repentance? It is King David crying to the Lord against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak. When you say I'm guilty, you're right. I have no defense. I don't care what the other conditions are that spurred my sin on, what the temptation was. I am the problem. It is me. It's like G.K. Chesterton, the old intellectual of the 1800s when the newspaper asked for people to write in and answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And he answered with the simple answer, I am G.K. Chesterton. That's repentance. That's owning my sinfulness before God. And that is what this man is doing upon the cross. No excuse, but a full embrace of the wrongs that he has done. No person will ever enter into paradise who does not honestly face and feel the sins that he or she has committed against God himself. You simply do not enter the kingdom without feeling that. You are like Pilgrim and the old Pilgrim's progress with that great burden upon your back of your own guilt, of your own sin. And so long as you deny it and try to live on in the city of destruction, it will crush you and you will be destroyed. It is when you come to the cross and 
lose the burden. It is when you realize your sin, confess it before God, and say, I would suffer justly in hell. It's precisely what I deserve. That is when you have completed that flip side of the coin of faith, repentance. But of course, there's two sides to a coin. And faith involves not only a sensing, a feeling, a believing of my own wrong and admitting it, but also on the other side of faith, you're turning from sin, that's repentance, and on the other side, you're turning to Christ. And you can call that trust. Repentance, trust. That's faith. Very simple. You see this happening in our thief. For after acknowledging his guilt, he concludes there by saying, this man has done nothing wrong. The attention is turning from himself. He's acknowledged his wrong. And now the attention turns on to this man. Like I said previously, faith, real faith, does involve pieces of data that you know about and agree with. Okay? So that's not all faith is, but it has to start there. And then it goes beyond that. So even in this man, what does he know about and agree concerning Jesus? Well, first, that Jesus is an innocent man. He believes in the sinlessness of Jesus, really. Verse, there at the end of that verse, he's done nothing wrong. If he believed Jesus was a filthy, horrible criminal like himself, he could not be saved. But he recognizes he's innocent. What else does he agree with or assent to about Jesus? Verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If Jesus is coming into a kingdom, what does that make him? This is the only man so far in the text who believes that Jesus is the king, that the sign declares him to be above his head. The thief does not think only of an immediate earthly kingdom either. It's not some false object of his faith. Just save yourself and us. And you know that because he's planning to die. It's when you come into your kingdom. That is that your kingdom's not of this world. It's not right here, immediate, kill the Romans. You're coming into it. You're about to die and come into your kingdom. And when you do that, remember me. The object of his faith is correct. Eternal life. That's what he wants. And Christ is a king, king of that kingdom. He believes that. Again, what else does he believe about Jesus? There's so much he doesn't know. But he knows at least this, that Jesus is a savior. Because his cry is, remember me. If Jesus isn't a savior, that would be meaningless. Why does that matter? You're about to die, I'm about to die. It's only if he's a king who can save him by remembering him, by giving attention to him. Like God with Noah in the ark, he remembered him and delivered him from the flood. And now he's saying, Jesus, when you come into your rightful kingdom, not of this world, then remember me and save me. He has to agree to the fact that Jesus is innocent, that he's a king, that he is a savior, and he does. But many people that you know agree with all of that and are not saved. That's where it starts. But then real faith goes beyond that into trust. Into trust. We might call that the one essential feature of real faith. Trust is 
reaching out the hand to receive what only Christ can give. And it's really a reaching out of both hands because it despairs in repentance of trying to work to get right with God. You despair of that. You despair of yourself, your ability to add anything to the work of Christ. You see that he does everything and trust, believes these things about Jesus, extends both the hands of the soul to him, doesn't look to the left or to the right. Cursed is the man whose trust is in the flesh, looks instead to Christ, says, you and you alone are Savior. In you alone there is salvation and extends both the hands. That's trust. That's not a mere nominal, yes, Jesus is a good man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus can save me. That is a casting of yourself before his knees as the only one who can save you. It's either salvation through him, entrance into paradise through him, or you're damned forever. And the soul has to believe that and feel that and reach out to Christ. And in that moment... This is what happens. Jesus answered. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, with hands reached out, today you will be with me in paradise. The only reason Jesus can say that is because he's doing all the work. This thief upon the cross Look at him. Not only has he done nothing good, he literally can do nothing good. His hands are pinned to wood. His feet driven into a peg. He can't move other than to push himself up to breathe and to gasp out some words. That's it. He's about to die. This is the last day of his earthly life. There's no time to balance the scales of good and bad. There's no time to be baptized. He's not going to be baptized. He's about to die. He has no time to fulfill any sacraments, to take the Lord's Supper, to do a single good work. No good works involved. They're not even possible. Literally the only thing he has is by God's grace, this receiving of what's being done by Christ for him. There is repentance in his heart, turning from a life of sin, a love for sin. And there is trust that extends itself to Christ in desperation, having done absolutely nothing else. And so he's good enough for paradise. I should say Christ is good enough for him to enter paradise. So I conclude with just asking you this. What does this thief have that you don't have? If you have any hesitation that Christ would receive you, that you yourself could be a genuine Christian, could have eternal life, could enter into paradise, you might think this possible for other people, the good people. But you think this is not possible for you because if I only knew who you were, look, I don't know who you are. God knows who you are and he's given this promise. What does the thief have that you don't have? This man may have murdered someone. This is a criminal. This is a man who literally went to his death unrepentant on the cross and then the change takes place. You think you're not good enough? I promise you the thief is not good enough. You think I don't trust myself that I'll stick to it, that I'll be able to turn my life around. I always give in to my old habits. Did the thief stick to it? Stuck to a cross? There's nothing he could do. He didn't turn his life around. 
His trust was completely in Christ. If you think you don't have the power to live the Christian life, then you're still trusting in your power. Christ will give you the power to live the Christian life. He requires of you nothing but to feel your need of Him. What does this thief have that you don't have? He lived an evil life. He didn't turn his life around. He wasn't baptized. He didn't come to church. He did nothing good except to feel his need of Jesus here at the 11th hour to extend his pinned hands by faith to him. And Jesus gives this promise. You're going to be with me today in paradise. And to confirm it, he says, truly, because you're going to doubt it. No. Truly, I tell you, you believe this moment, this moment. And I, why would you leave this building now without an assurance, without a confidence that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Whatever the obstacle, I promise you, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Jesus can overcome that. Place your faith in him and you will hear the exact words that Christ spoke to that thief by faith in the text. Here's the promise. You will be with Jesus in paradise forever. Let's pray. Lord, I want to again request that you would please take these words which are true and would do what you're able to do in us, which is to turn the heart. I want to plead, Lord, for those who do not know you, if there are intellectual objections or a sense that they need to learn a lot more about Christianity first, I just don't know that there will be time for that. We don't know that. There wasn't for the thief. He knew enough. And they, having heard these things from your word, know enough. I pray they would not delay, that they would not tarry. I pray that now, the day of salvation, they would enter into salvation. That they would extend their hands and this moment even receive the promise of paradise. I pray that you would clear away objection. That you would stop the devil who holds fast their chains and is loath to let them go, Lord, you have taken his greatest weapon, a fear of death. Lord, you have removed his authority or power. You've pulled the sting out of the bee. And I pray now that you would deliver to yourself those who all their lives have been enslaved by a fear of death and show them that death is not the end. There is a paradise for those who believe in you. I pray they'd enter into that eternal life even now Enjoy you now and forever. And for your people who week by week are assaulted by the devil to believe themselves too sinful to continue in your favor, I pray you'd remind us through this thief that all comes from you, not from us. You loved him while he was still a sinner and loved us while we were still sinners. How much more so now, though we fail, will you save us from the wrath to come? In Christ's name we pray.